Travel Show. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. It seems like Portugal is front of mind to American travelers who are looking to visit Europe. And that's that's somewhat of a new development. To help me discuss that development, plus what there is to see and do in Portugal, I have the brilliant writer of our brand new Fromer's Portugal Guide on the line. He is Paul Ames. He lives in Portugal, and we are so proud to have him as one of the Fromer's writers. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Nice to be speaking with you. So where am I reaching you? Where are you based? Well, I'm based now on the Portugal's south coast in the Algarve region in a beautiful little town called Tavira. It's uh, just Ah. about 20, uh, 20 minutes drive from the Spanish border down here. But for a long time, you were based in Lisbon, right? That's correct. Yeah, we actually moved down here during the pandemic. We needed a, we thought we needed a place with a bit more space and a bit more open, uh, open air around us. Yeah. And I guess Portugal or Lisbon has been a place that increasingly feels like it has less space because it is booming in terms of tourism. Well, and been- I like this is a new development. Why do you think this is occurring? Well, it, it, it's, it's um, I, I think there are a number of factors. Primarily amongst them is Portugal is a beautiful country. It's a, it's a, it's a small yes. country. It's only about the size of Maryland, but it has a fantastic uh, array of landscapes, of historic cities, of beautiful beaches. I think for many years it was the beaches essentially that brought in European tourists. Uh, they were coming mm. here to 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 lay on the on the the wonderful sand we have here and enjoyed the sunshine. But I think increasingly people are also coming now for the culture, for the the, the history. I mean, we have we have so many um, UNESCO World Heritage sites in our cities and cities like Lisbon, like uh, Porto, like uh, Coimbra, Évora. Uh, there's a wealth of history here that goes back. You know, before the Romans, uh, there, there was a period when when Portugal was ruled by by uh, by Arabs in the in the huh. Middle Ages. So it goes back; the heritage goes back really a long, long way. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, not to be crass, but Portugal is relatively inexpensive, especially when compared to, say, Switzerland or France. Or even Italy. It's one of the least expensive countries in Europe or in Western Europe for people to visit, right? Yeah, sure. And that, that's, that's definitely a, a, a factor. I mean, the, the cost of living here, we've been having a little bit of inflation over the past few years, like everywhere else in the world. But the, the, the cost of living here is still remarkably low for, for many visitors coming from, from the United States or from Northern Europe. The, the, the example I always give, I'm always shocked when I travel to visit my daughters who live in London and I end up paying let's say something around $4 for a cup of coffee, whereas here you can get a, a very good shot of espresso for about 70 cents. Oh my goodness. Wow. That is a, a stark contrast. Getting back to the history so you can see it all cheaply. And I, I love that about Portugal. You can have really a gourmet meal for maybe $20 and, and a, an everyday but very good one for half that. Uh, but what I found so striking about Portugal was the variety of the history and the drama of it. Uh, at one point, Portugal led the world. It was uh, the top nation that was uh, colonizing other nations and bringing vast wealth back from the new world, which then built 
uh, cities that still sparkle today. And then you had Salazar, uh, who was a terrible dictator for for many, many decades. Uh, And so for a while in the, uh, well, I guess he's been gone 50 years now, but before that, for for decades, uh, Portugal was the poorest country in Europe. I think I read that at one point, they had an infant mortality rate uh, that was higher than most parts of sub-Saharan Africa under Salazar and a stalled economy. And now it feels like it's a very progressive nation, one that is is doing very well by its people. That's from an outsider's perspective. You probably have a, a more uh, granular feeling there, about there, that. There's, um, I mean, another, without wishing to throw too many statistics at you, but when I first moved, I first came to live here in the, in the 1980s. And back then, around 20% of the population here was illiterate. They couldn't read or write. That was a huh. direct legacy of that Salazar dictatorship, which, wow. which set out not to educate its people. That's completely turned around now. Portugal, Portuguese young people are among the best educated in, in Europe. Uh, its education system regularly tops uh, tops the league tables or comes close to the top of league tables. And one good thing for visitors is that almost everybody, at least I would say almost everybody under the age of 50, speaks English here. You know, the English is right. extremely um, widely spoken, uh, particularly amongst the younger generation. And, uh, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by meeting young Portuguese people whose English is somewhat better than mine. Yes, and that's good because Portuguese is difficult. It's a, it's not an easy language. I I grew up, I learned Spanish growing up, and I tried to use that, just adding a lot of zhs, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't work. It doesn't really work. It's a complex language. I thought it, it is. It is. It's a beautiful language, um, but it, it is. It, it can be quite complicated, particularly as as you mentioned in terms of the pronunciation, which is sometimes not what you expect. Right. All right. So if somebody is going to Portugal for the very first time, what do you think is is the ideal itinerary for them to follow? What should they see and do? Well, it, it, it depends, of course, on how much time you have and, and what, what sure. your special interests are. But I would say that the capital city, Lisbon, it should be a, a definite uh, must. It's, it's, it's certainly one of the most beautiful cities in Europe. It's built, uh, the, the medieval heart of it is built in, in white limestone on a hillside, or on uh, several hillsides, overlooking this vast uh, bay of the Tagus River one of the largest uh, estuaries in, in Europe. And you have this big sheet of, of, of still water reflecting that, uh, that medieval city. It's quite a sight yeah. when you see it for the first time, whether you look at you see it out of your airplane window or if you're on a cruise ship coming into the harbor for the first time. It's really quite breathtaking, the, the, beaut- the natural beauty of the city. Yeah. And uh, apart from that, it, it has a, a very vibrant uh, cultural life. Uh, there, there is, a, there is, a, there are beautiful museums, beautiful art galleries, and the city. The city has changed a lot in the past few years, uh, partly because of its uh, success as a tourist destination. You find less compared to ten years ago. You find less of the the the, the quaint and the traditional uh, old town areas of the city. Much of that has now been transformed. It's dynamic. It's it's very international. You can now find restaurants serving cuisine from all around the world. You have huh. um, the, the the cultural offer is extremely extremely wide. On the other hand, it's lost a little bit of that uh, unique charm. I think um, where you used to have people 
singing from their windows, traditional photo music and, uh, and and that kind of thing. You you don't see that quite as much in the centre of the city as you do now. But there are also oh, quite quaint neighbourhoods you can find by getting out of the city, going a little bit off the beaten track. And I've tried to highlight right. that in the guidebook, the places you can still find that kind of traditional part of the city. Yeah. And and that traditional, I was in a an outlying area of Lisbon and I, I spotted two women about three stories up, just shouting across the alleyway as they put up laundry, which was also strung over the street. And they just were sitting there having a conversation, living their everyday lives. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm not in New York City anymore. This is <laughs> yeah, wonderful. That's, that's very much the kind of traditional image of neighborhoods, the old town neighborhoods like uh, Alfama and Moreria. Um, th- that's changed a little bit now. I mean, that's now full of like hipster cafes and, and, um, and short-term mm. holiday rentals, which have unfortunately forced out a lot of those uh, ladies would be having their conversation across the windows. Hmm. But you have not lost paste de nata, I hope. <laughs> I would go back to Portugal in an instant just to eat those. Can you describe what those are? To me, they, they are so, the pas- pastes, best dessert in the world. Pastes de nata are um, basically a, a kind of flaky pastry cake made with filled with the very sweet custard cracked cream, which it's traditional. You get them hot from the cafe and you sprinkle cinnamon uh, over them. They are absolutely delicious. It's a recipe going back centuries and, and the original place that invented them still exists. It's a beautiful, huh. a beautiful cafe in the Belém neighborhood of, of Lisbon, which you mentioned earlier, the period of the discoveries. Well, the Belém neighborhood is very much associated with that period. Um, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, a beautiful uh, monastery there that was built in honor of Vasco da Gama and those guys who went out on those voyages of discovery back in the in in the, the 15th and 16th century and it's it's a must see it's a it's a beautiful beautiful church very ornate architecture inspired by that time and when you've visited the church you can pop to that cafe and have your pastel de nata to uh, to give you extra energy for further sightseeing and that's in the book. Or can I put you that's on the spot? The Do you know the name of the cafe? It's called it's called uh, Pastel de Belém. Okay, yeah. Yeah. that's that. Yeah, and and the trick so is you... you'll find that there's a big there's always a big line outside for people to get takeaway ones. But the trick is to actually go in the cafe and have your ca- sit down, have a coffee, and have your pastel de nata, and then order a box to take away. And that way you can avoid the lines at the takeaway stand. And you just. Uh, showed why Fromer's guidebooks are so great, because we are going to give you this type of insider information uh, that you won't get elsewhere. So say you have two weeks in in Portugal, how many days do you spend in in Lisbon? Four days? I would definitely spend four or five days in Lisbon. Make sure you've got enough time to take a side trip to the the, the small town of Sintra, which is a short train journey away. It's up in in the hills to the west of Lisbon. It takes about half an hour to get there on a train. And it's it's where the, the, the royal family, when Portugal was a kingdom back in the day, and, and also the noble families built their palaces to get out of the heat in the summer because it's up on a hillside there and it's up close to the coast. It has really a unique climate. It's often quite cool. It's got very thick, lush, uh, almost like a tropical rainforest uh, vegetation up there. And in amongst all that, you've got these spectacular palaces and castles, which some of them date back to the Middle Ages. Other, the most spectacular one was built in the 19th century. 
it's it looks like uh, it looks a bit like those Bavarian castles you see, like the Disney type castles. Yes, yes. And that's because a the bright, bright ochre in color. Exactly, it's full of different colors, and it was actually built by a German prince who married the Queen of Portugal. He married Queen Maria in the middle of the 19th century and built this castle inspired by his homeland in Germany. But it's it's really quite a spectacular site, and it has fantastic views up the coast around there. And uh, yeah, Sintra is definitely worth a trip. It's another UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I don't want to reveal too much about how I travel, but they also have a very good pastry in Sintra, right? They, <laughs> they, they, they certainly do. In, in fact, I mean, that, that's one of the things I love about the country is pretty much every town still maintains those kind of uh, culinary traditions. So every yeah. town will have a traditional dish, will have a traditional pastry, and wherever you travel, you'll be able to find some local delicacy, which is kind of unique to that town. And I think that's something which adds to the, the, the special character of Portugal. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you 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 spent your five days in Portugal in Lisbon with a side trip to Sintra. I'm guessing you go to Porto next. Yeah, Porto Porto is the second city. Um, it's 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 different in many ways. From it's also on the coast. It's also very much a kind of maritime city, but it's it's very different in character. And the first thing you notice about it is it, it's the color is darker. It's made with the the the, the buildings, the old buildings in Porto are made with granite. A dark gray granite rather than the white limestone that Lisbon is constructed from. But it, it has perhaps even a more dramatic location. It's built on a ravine. So the old medieval quarters rise up quite suddenly from the River Douro. Up from the ravine, there's, there are churches and cathedrals and, and built on there. And the ravine is crossed by some spectacular bridges made of iron, which may look familiar because they were designed by Gustav Eiffel, uh, the, who, who built a certain tower oh. in Paris. Uh, one of them was designed by him and another by one of his pupils. So they, they, they reflect a little bit that iron girder architecture that you see in the Eiffel Tower. And then on the other side of the river, you've got the, 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 the thing that Porto is most famous for, perhaps the port wine lodges, the places where the port wine is put to mature in barrels often for, for years and years to pr- produce those fantastic vintage port wines. Right. And you can go from tasting house to tasting house and, and try some. I love how history shapes what we eat and drink. And you, you feel that really in Porto because uh, port wine was created because the British couldn't get good wine anymore because of the, the wars uh, that Napoleon was waging on the continent. And, and when the ships carrying wine across the channel would get there, the wine would have spoiled. And so they they pushed the creation of this fortified wine, exactly. uh, which is uh, uh, half wine, half liquor in a certain way. Yeah. Um, did I get the story right? Almost. It was actually, I think, before <laughs> Napoleon. It was an earlier oh, okay. war between the British and the, and, the, and the French when the Portuguese stepped in and, uh, and, and provided the wine that the British were in need of. But uh, yes, that's that's exactly how it worked out. And they put they they, they actually they, they they fortified the wine, which they mixed it with with brandy basically, to 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 make it um, to preserve it during the sea journey. Uh, in those days, the wine apparently used to go off, and so they put brandy in it, and the Brits de- de- uh, developed a taste for that. And um, yeah, it's it's taken off from there. And now there's a, a whole culture around uh, port wines, and th- there are there are historic vintages which sell for tens of thousands of dollars it's really uh, but you don't worry about that you can also get them for uh, for ten dollars yes. or so in, when you're there absolutely you and home. Uh, 
And even if you usually think that port is too sweet, I discovered that in Portugal, many people or some people are the people I was with drink it mixed with tonic, which is actually a very lovely, refreshing cocktail Definitely. and very yeah, easy to make. There's actually, I mean, there are very different types of port and the, 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 the lighter one, the less sweet one is, is, uh, is a white port, which is traditionally served as an aperitif. And yeah, that's mixed with tonic. It's a, it's a very uh, popular cocktail here to have as a, as a pre-dinner drink. So in our two-week itinerary of uh, Portugal, we're in Porto now. How many days are we staying? I think I'd spend three or four days in Porto. And, and then we were talking about side trips. Maybe for two or three days, you can, you can, you can travel up the River Douro to the, actually where the vineyards are, where the, where the grapes are grown to make that port wine. It's, it's, um, I mean, I, I always say I think it's the most, pro- probably the most beautiful wine growing area in the world because the, the river twists and turns through the, the hills which are covered in vines. Every time, every time you're driving up there, you take a different corner, you have a different vista of these vineyards mm-hmm. hugging the, the, the curves of the, of the hills up there. It's, uh, it's really quite spectacular. And you have, this is, this is something which is also, Portugal has developed extremely well in the past few years are these small, historic hotels you can find pretty much in every village or small town now and up there you find them on the port wine estate so it's quite possible to stay in one of these historic old wine estates you can have they'll normally be serving excellent food you can taste the wines and you can actually stay up there amongst the uh, amongst the wine producers on working farms and see how it's produced and really sort of get a taste of the of the the atmosphere of those uh, those historic historic wineries Oh, it sounds amazing. Okay, so how many days for the wine region? So, I would, if you're spending three days in Porto, then then spend two or three days going up the wine region. I mean, there there are other things to to discover up there as well. I mean, there there there's a there's um there's a there's a wonderful museum overlooking the the River Douro, which is dedicated to prehistoric art. They found some of the oldest, uh, well, basically human art, but it's really graffiti, prehistoric uh, peoples who carved animals uh, images of animals onto the rocks up there and, and i said some of the earliest art produced by by humans and uh, mm. that was discovered discovered by accident when they were preparing to flood a valley up there to make a, a dam uh, fortunately they, huh? they found this before and pulled back and you've got this really unique archaeological site up there now if somebody wanted to add one of the portuguese islands onto their itinerary do they go to the Azores? Do they pick Madeira? What What would you recommend? It's a tough. It's a tough choice. Um, they're, they're They're quite different. Then they both lay in lay in the Atlantic. Madeira is further south. It's closer to the coast of Africa, and it has really a kind of all round. Um, well, as they call it, it's the island of eternal spring, and it has this kind of all round mild climate, all year round mild climate. It's It's really quite beautiful. It has a subtropical climate. Uh, you've got these fantastic hills rising out of the Atlantic, which are covered in forest. You also have, of course, Madeira, Madeira wine, which is the, the right. great rival of port, also a fortified wine. And you, you have, you know, there, there, there are um, fabulous cities. Uh, the city of Funchal is uh, the capital of Madeira. It's actually a very lively and cosmopolitan uh, town full of history, too. And, and then the Azores, the Azores are different. They, they, they are more or less halfway or two thirds of the way between Boston and uh, and Europe, and uh, so it's maybe easier to reach coming from the US. And they're nine islands. They're all very different. The weather is a bit more unpredictable in the Azores. You can get uh, huh. it, it rains a lot, but you usually, it's usually very. Um, if you have one day of rain, the next day is going to be sunshine. 
And they are also very, very spectacular in terms of their landscapes. They're volcanic. Uh, they're very green. They have a, so kind of a less of an ur- less of an urban and historic visit, and more of a nature visit. Is that fair? Yes, I would say so. I mean, one of the, one of my favorites in, in the Azores Islands is the island of Pico, which is which is uh, it's the highest mountain in Portugal, and it rises. It's a volcano, a still active volcano that rises just rises out of the Atlantic. And it's, it's really quite a spectacular sight, this big black mountain uh, on, on rising up out of the ocean. It's, uh, it's really, really an extraordinary sight. But there's also culture there. The, the island of Teixeira, where um, many Americans will know, particularly from California, because a lot of people from, uh, from Teixeira emigrated to, to California years ago. Huh. But uh, Teixeira is, uh, the capital city of Teixeira is called Ancra, and it was kind of it was built um, during that period of the discovery, so from the more or less in the fifteenth and sixteenth century. And it's this beautifully preserved, like a, it was kind of like a model for colonial towns that were were eventually built in Latin America. So it's like it's very colorful. Um, it's 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 full of these little houses, little churches, and you know it reminds you a little bit of Cartagena in in Colombia or or Salvador in Brazil but on a smaller scale. And it was really the model for that type of uh, colonial town. Wow, very interesting. Uh, before I let you go, because uh, I think we have a great itinerary, <laughs> and it's also in the book, obviously. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make when they go to Portugal, or the, the thing that they miss but they shouldn't? Hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm speaking to you now from the Algarve region. Now, the Algarve was the, 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 it's, it's the south coast. It has these lovely sheltered uh, beaches. And it's the area where tourism really took off back in the 60s with, with um, uh, mainly Brits coming here uh, for the package tours. And unfortunately, like the, the, there's part of, that, of this, this coastline which has rather been spoiled by tourism, in my opinion. It's, it's full of um, high-rise, high-rise hotels pubs selling cheap beer to 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 people flying in on on a, basically for to get drunk cheaply sure um, right. which you can do here um yeah. but i think it, within the algarve there are still areas of spectacular beauty and i think you have to be a little bit careful when you're coming to this region that you pick one of the right places that's what i would suggest and i think if you look to the areas to the east near the Spanish border where I am or to the far west where you have these wonderful surfing beaches, uh, there you can still find a kind of authentic uh, Algarve with, with all those kind of the, the local charm uh, while still having those beautiful beaches, but avoiding a little bit the overdevelopment which has taken place huh. in some of the central parts of the coast. Is there one you would name to avoid? There's a place called Villa Mora, which I'm certainly not a fan of. It was a kind of a, <laughs> okay. it was a, a ready-made resort built in the, from the 1970s onwards and um, not the most attractive place in the country, in my opinion. Ah, well, good to know. Good to know. Well, as always, it's such a delight to speak with you and even more of a delight to read your brilliant new book, Fully Updated. That must have been, was that a big, big job because of the pandemic or had Things not changed that much. It was it was it was a big, a big job uh, because of the pandemic. I mean, I, I think there was a process going on um, before the pandemic. It was kind of put on hold, but it continued afterwards. Yes. There, there's been a, a, a I say with the fact that tourism is growing so fast here, means there's a lot of new hotels opening, a lot of new restaurants opening. So just keeping a track of, of some of the new places which have cropped up has been has been quite a task. I, I must, I'm something of a traditionalist, so I kind of look for place the, for hotels which have some heritage and, and restaurants which have some tradition. So I haven't been sure. 
chasing too much the latest fads, but you know, you need to keep away, keep abreast of all those new things which are coming. Yeah. Thank you again, both for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show and for writing your beautiful book. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Our next guest has written a kicky new book. It's called Bravish, One Breakup, Six Continents, and Feeling Fearless After 50. Her name is Lisa Niver. She's on the phone right now. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the Firmer Travel Show. Oh my goodness, Pauline. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. Let me ask you, why did you name the book Brave-ish? <laughs> that is a great question and a source of contention among my friends and family. (laughs) When uh, I was traveling in Asia with my then husband, and when I came home alone, and I felt very sad, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, everyone kept telling me that I was so brave. Hmm. And it happened so frequently, and I did not feel that at all, that I, in fact, looked the word up in the dictionary multiple times. And what did you find? Did you find that it related to you or not so much? You know, I kept trying to reconcile that people thought I was brave, but I felt like such a failure and so embarrassed and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So over time, I've come to understand that a, that bravery has a lot to doing to deal with doing things when maybe you don't feel that you can you know, rising to the occasion. And I did do that. And I did make a lot of changes. And the book that you mentioned, it does recount, I did 50 challenges before I turned 50 to reinvent myself after my divorce. But it, it took me a while to think about myself as brave. And I know a lot of other people don't necessarily feel courageous all the time. And I just felt that brave-ish, something we can all try, right? Like it could be just a little bit brave at a time. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the book has to do with your relationship with your now ex-husband, and I don't want to give away the details of that. But what surprised me was I didn't realize you had such a varied background in travel. First of all, you worked at Club Med. Tell me what it was like to work at Club Med and what people who are traveling to Club Med should know about what's going on behind <laughs> the scenes there. <laughs> well, I I ended up traveling to Club Med because my friend had gone there with her young daughter and I was evolving careers yet again. And she was like, those people just seem like they're having the best time. She said, if I was single, that is exactly what I would do. And we did call Club Med Club Bed. (laughs) There was a lot of, as we say, mingling. Right. Between staff or between staff and guests or both? Any combination you could think of did happen, yes. It was different when I moved on and I started working for the cruise ships. The cruise ships, the mingling, the mingling was below decks. You were not meant to have uh, encounters with paying passengers. But at Club Med, it was definitely encouraged that I was in a staff meeting once where the chief of the village said, next week, there'll be a lot of single ladies and I want them to be happy. <laughs> As kind of a, here's your, here's your task, guys. 
hilarious. Yes. I mean, in fairness, it was a long time ago. I don't know what it's like now. But when I was there, basically cruise ships and Club Med for me, it's like living in a college dorm, but no one has any homework. (laughs) Right, right. And on the cruise ships, I always thought that would be a very difficult life because it, it seems like a lot of hours. Or is it different between the American cruise crew member or crew staff and say folks from the Philippines, from Thailand, from everywhere else in the world who do the harder work on cruise ships? Absolutely. That's a great question. So everybody on board works every single day. And when I worked at Club Med, we also worked every single day. So for me, going from Club Med to ships was actually less work because at Club Med, we worked in our service. I worked in the kids program. We ate with the guests and we were in the show at night. So for me, going to cruise ships was kind of a vacation because I only worked in my service. There were professionals that were entertainers and we did not eat with the guests. So to me, even though I was still working seven days a week, I had more free time. And you are correct. Different services work different hours. And when I first started on the cruise ship, the, the, the children's program could only be open when we were at sea. When we were in port, we were closed. So I did have- And so you, you worked in the children's program because you had a background in teaching. I worked in the children's program because I had a background in teaching. And then I found out the cruise staff uh, worked less hours, made more money, and had better cabins. So I switched to that. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, so what did that mean? What was your new job? Oh my gosh. I loved being an assistant cruise director. I called bingo. I used to lead Jewish (laughs) services. We did quizzes. I hosted the show. It was a blast. We we hung out and talked to people. It was it was amazing. And I thought what was interesting was on the days that you were in port. About a third of the time you had to stay on the ship just because in case there was any kind of emergency, they needed to have enough crew on board to handle it. But the rest of the time, you were just off uh, exploring the world, right? You, you got to see an incredible uh, swath of the planet that way. Absolutely. I My house moved and I was really proactive in asking for new itineraries. So I would, I would write to the office and I would say, oh, this contract's so great. I'm having the best time, but do you think next I could go for, you know, for the summer to the Mediterranean? And they would write back, oh, Lisa, we're so happy to have you. We're f- kind of full in the Mediterranean. Would you think about going to Asia? I was like, oh, <laughs> that, that sounds better. Yes. I like right. your idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was one really fun part of the book. And then you traveled with your husband for almost a full year, going to some of the most far-flung, unusual destinations. I want to ask you about some of them. Gobi Desert. What is the Gobi Desert like? I, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's one of my most favorite adventures. We had traveled in China extensively. And then we went by uh, bus and train into Mongolia. And we went on an adventure from the capital. We left Ulaanbaatar and in a van with another couple. And literally before lunch, we'd left in the morning before lunch, there were no more power lines. There were no more roads. There was basically no more anything. And we were on an 11-day journey in that van. We had to bring a lot of our own food. We stayed at night in gares, local people's homes. 
It was gears, aren't gears, uh Aren't they tents? They, or, yes, or no? yes, they are tents. Uh, other people call them. Um, I can't think of the other name of a gear right now. Um, it's a it's a round tent. A round right? a round tent. They're nomads and mm-hmm. so hospitable. And after many many days of driving, and we had great adventures. We watched people shear their camels. We saw wild horses. We got to the Gobi Desert and we walked into these dunes. We were basically the only people for miles. Wow. It, the One of the most amazing things about walking in the dunes is there were patches of flowers. I was huh. like, how is there, how are there plants? Where's the water? It was incredibly beautiful. And we saw one of the best things on that trip was we saw the moon rise because there was no light pollution and there were no buildings. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know if. Well, I think I've seen a moon rise. Although, when you say you saw the moon rise, you saw it slowly come up over the horizon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow! Oh, that must have been spectacular over the desert. It was so en- enchanting. I've never forgotten that moment. It was, you know, they said to us when we went on this trip that we would be in the vast expanse of nothingness, and that is a great description. You, you're just out there and. I don't know how they navigated. We had, he had a rate, the guy driving us had a cassette player. We had one cassette. We got kind of bored of that. It was, you know, there's no GPS. It's all in his head. Well, it's probably different now, right? This was about over a decade ago, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Yeah. And the you van, because also- the van broke down and he had to fix it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can you imagine and that this is before GPS, before you could ping somebody and say, oops, our van is broken down. Yeah, lots of adventures in this tale. Before we go, tell me about the 50 tasks that you gave yourself. Yes, I did a project to do 50 challenges before 50, and there were quite a few scuba diving adventures. I took back a lot of things I had thought growing up that I was clumsy, but in fact, I had some eye issues. So a bunch of things that as a child I'd had major accidents I redid. I kind of learned to bike again. I went mountain biking in Lake Tahoe and things I never, ever thought I would ever do. Well, I think that's what people will take away from this book. I mean, you talked about the nature of bravery at the start. And I think people always think a brave person is somebody, you know, with flowing hair at the top of the mountain looking spectacular. But really what it means is having deep-seated fears and issues and insecurities and somehow still getting on with it. I think that that really is what's brave and that that's what I took away from the book. Thank you. Yes, I think you're right. It's about being willing to do stuff even if it's scary. Yeah. And and travel is one of the best things for that, I think, don't you? Oh my goodness. I love finding new places and I have so many places still on my list I want to explore. Yes. Well, that's the thing about it. People always say to me, you haven't been to, you know, destination X with the look of shock on their faces, but it's it's a massive world. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't get everywhere. And there's still places that are going to surprise you every time you go, I think. That's the joy of it. I mean, I know when we've been at the Travel and Adventure Show together, I've heard you talk about new places, like when you went bicycling in the wine country in France. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, such a delight speaking with you, Lisa, and many, many congratulations 
on the book. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone gets to enjoy my new book, Bravish. Yes. All right. That's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Okay.